In our last study, we focused more on Daniel's refusal to capitulate to the king's demands. That was the main emphasis, that Daniel said no. It's a significant thing, even when one person stands up and says no to something that everybody else is being pressured to do. It gives courage to other people around you. It kind of shocks the system a little bit and doesn't quite know how to handle it. It's significant when one person says no, and that's what we focused on. We did not talk so much about what his responsibilities were to be as he was going to be trained, and we need to make sure we review that because otherwise this following story is not going to make any sense to you. Daniel and his companions were trained as to use a very broad term, wise men in the court of Babylon. These were men who were to advise the king, especially in matters of wisdom. That's such a broad word, wisdom. We think of wisdom, we think of Proverbs. We think of being able to live a good life. That's certainly part of it. But it's broader than that in scripture. It'll talk about Solomon's wisdom and it'll talk about the scientific understanding that he had of the natural world. It'll talk about wisdom and it'll talk about tactics in battle or strategies for ruling a kingdom. It'll also talk about spiritual wisdom and spiritual insight. And all of those things overlapped in how these people were to advise the king. They were experts in literature. Well, why do you want an advisor expert in literature? Because he knows all the wisdom that's come before. He knows what the trends are. He knows what the experts are saying. They were experts in science. They knew how to track the stars. I saw that in Babylon, they had so tracked and charted the movement of the stars that they were only off in the precise length of a year by something like 20 days. They were incredibly precise in how they measured this. And of course, they didn't have any scientific instruments other than like pen and paper. They didn't even have telescopes, right? But they were very, they were smart people. Magic as well. And we think, well, that seems kind of silly, but that's only because that's our culture. Everywhere else, they still have magic advisors. People that knew how to do spells, people that knew how to interpret omens, and religious advisors as well. They would get people from the different cultures, and what does this religion say? What does that religion say? And we do that as well today. Our presidents and governors have advisors of all kinds to advise them on different matters, and this is where Daniel was. Now, there was, of course, a very strong magical and, and pagan element to this, but it was not exclusive to that. The point is they were brought in to be smart people to help the king make decisions. And we saw in verse 21 of chapter 1 that the Hebrew boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were 10 times better than all of their colleagues. They graduated top of the class, like on top of the top of the class. They were on the roof of their class. They were smart. They were good at what they did. And the next story is going to describe Daniel's first major interaction with King Nebuchadnezzar as one of his wise men. You might describe a wise man as someone whose job it is to find answers to hard questions. The Bible uses the term a mystery. And this is what we're going to look at today. There was a mystery that needed to be solved. Not like an old gumshoe story, but like the mysteries of the universe, right? Trying to sort those out and figure out what is behind all of this. And that's what they were to do. And this is something we are still trying to do today, isn't it? Don't we still have wise men today trying to solve the mysteries of the universe, trying to advise the rest of us, trying to be the expert that can tell us what the truth is? Well, the advantage that Daniel had is that the omniscient God was on his side. If you're trying to be wise and understand the mysteries of the universe, it helps to have the one that has all wisdom and made the universe on your team. So really wasn't fair 
comparing Daniel to the rest of them. But the thing is, it's the same advantage that you and I have. We have the omniscient Lord on our side, the all-knowing God. And the lesson that we have to learn today is the one that Nebuchadnezzar learned. Don't trust those without godly wisdom to solve your mysteries for you. Don't trust people that don't have the source of all knowledge on their side to solve your mysteries. They might have some good ideas, might be able to track the stars and all the rest of it and, and track the gene code and all of that, but if they don't know God, they're short. They're trying to make a puzzle without all the pieces. Might be really good at this corner over here, but you have no idea what the big picture is. So let's get into it. I actually really like Nebuchadnezzar in this story. As brutal as he is, I really sympathized with him when I was studying this. Let's read the first 11 verses. You might be horrified as we go through this after me saying that, but I'll explain. <laughs> in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, underline that if you would, in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins." But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, this, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. We pick up the story in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, depending on how you calculate the time here, this is either during the training period for Daniel or just after his graduation. You'll remember that the Babylonians track the accession year as counting as, or, or don't track it, I should say. For the Israelites, when a king became king, his first year was called his first year. And then when we kind of say he comes to his first anniversary, they would say that's his second year. The Babylonians kind of had their accession year and didn't start counting until the first. So uh, this is 603 to 602 BC, a couple years after the, the fall, or not the fall, but the conquest of Jerusalem. Babylon would not fall, or Jerusalem would not fall until much later. In any case, either just toward the end of his training or just after his training was over. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream from God. And next week, we're going to look at this dream in detail and what it was and what it represents. But it's important to note as we go through this, I had some longer uh, words on this, but I'm just going to say it in passing. Proverbs 16.10 says, an oracle is in the mouth of the king. God reveals things to leaders and rulers that he does not reveal to everybody else. 
God knows how the nations are run, and God speaks in special ways to leaders and commanders of men. I think you've seen this through history, where somebody who maybe wasn't so great, but all of a sudden when the moment comes, they just step up and do what they need to do. Well, the Lord is in that. It's, it's encouraging to remember that, that the Lord uses the heart of the king for his own purposes. That doesn't always mean it's going to mean health and wealth for you and me, but God is in control, and that is important to know. But he has these dreams. He can't sleep. So as the kings would do, he summons his wise men to ascertain the meaning of his dream. We have found from this time period in this place, giant dream guides that they would use to interpret dreams. There's a very famous Akkadian in the Akkadian language dream interpretation guide. There's an Egyptian dream interpretation guide. And in fact, if you go on Amazon, you can still buy them and people are still using them today, weirdly enough. But this was something they considered themselves to be experts in, that they could break it down and tell you exactly what the symbol meant. And if this happened in the dream, turn to page 48. And if that happened, go back to page 16 and, and tell them what the dreams meant. They consider themselves to be experts in it. And there are four groups listed here, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. These are subtly different, but they're more or less interchangeable. Uh, the first one where it says magicians, this is actually related to the word for a stylus pen. So some people have suggested it might be better translated uh, like academics or literati or people that are familiar with writing, although there certainly was a magical element to it. You know, enchanters, people that dealt in spells, sorcerers, these were spiritists, people that would try to summon the dead to tell them what to do. And the Chaldeans, and now this word is used very broadly in the Bible, the Chaldeans were the ruling class of Babylon. It was an ethnic group, but they were, fam they were famous for their magic, their astrology, and their religion. So you can use this term to mean the Babylonians in general, or to the ruling class of Babylon, or specifically to the religious elite in Babylon. So he's calling in the priests, more or less, the Chaldeans. And he wants them to interpret his dream. I had a dream, my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king, in verse 4, where it says, in Aramaic, you should note this, the text goes from Hebrew to Aramaic, right after those words. And it will continue in Aramaic until, uh, until chapter 7, verse 28. And some have even said, it's possible that when the text says in Aramaic, that's not supposed to be like part of the text as much as like a footnote. Like, and now in Aramaic. And it like has a marker in the text because the, the language is very, very similar. This is the common language of the day that was used in court, much as how French was the language of diplomacy for a very, very long time in Europe. But just an interesting note, it doesn't affect uh, much about, of the story, except that it seems to be the Aramaic portions fo focus more on the Gentile nations, and the Hebrew portions focus more on the Hebrew nations, although there's some overlap to that. But they say, oh, yes, oh, king, live forever. We got you, man. You tell us, and we will get you your dream. I got my giant dream book right here. We'll make it happen. But Nebuchadnezzar withholds the content of his dream. Another translation note in verse 5. The ESV has it, the word from me is firm. The King James has it translated, the thing has gone from me. It's important to notice that when it says the thing has gone from me in King James, which is a literal translation, he's not saying he has forgotten the dream. He's saying this thing that I'm about to say is my declaration that is never going to be changed. 
So it's, it's very likely, and I think you can read it, you can tell, he knew what his dream was. He doesn't trust these people. He says, here's what I'm going to say, and I'm not about to change this because I'm the king and I can do that. Because in verse 8, we see that he thought they were delaying. It's possible that we have multiple court visits in this story. It's all kind of telescoped into one. He says, I've had a dream, and I want to know what it is. Oh, you tell us what it is. We'll let you know. He says, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not telling you the dream. You come back and tell me the dream and its interpretation. So maybe they go away for a while. Okay, well, we'll go suss it out, and we'll let you know. And then kind of it goes on, it goes on, it goes on, it goes on. And so then it's been a long time and he summons him back. He goes, what's the deal? I want to know what my dream is. And they say, well, you've got to tell us the dream. And he goes, I know what you're doing. You're playing for time, hoping that I will change my mind or forget about it. And in fact, when he says, till the times change there, do you see that in verse 9? The book of Daniel uses that phrase, the changing of the times, to describe the rising and falling of kings most of the time. So, while it's not certain, it is possible that what he's saying is, you never wanted me to be king. My father died. You don't want me here. You think I'm a bad ruler. And you figure, sooner or later, this hot-headed emperor is going to get himself killed, and we won't have to worry about this. Nebuchadnezzar does come off as rather paranoid throughout the book of Daniel. So, you can see the conflict here. Why is that? Because Nebuchadnezzar was a warrior. He was the general that had defeated Egypt at Carchemish, conquered the empire for his father, and now he comes home. He was an alpha male. He did not have time for these silly little people in their silly little robes with their silly little books going to tell him what his dreams meant. He probably, as the young general, had watched his aging father listen to these people as they tricked him and deceived him and told him what he wanted to hear. And so he probably said to himself, If I ever come up and I'm king, I'm not going to let these people push me around. I've watched them manipulate dad. They're not manipulating me. Well, now he's in a place where he kind of needs these guys. But he's not going to let himself get tricked. You're not going to get to wave your hands. And if I tell you the dream, you'll just make something up. And how am I supposed to know that you didn't? So he says, you tell me what the dream is. And they get all indignant about it. Do you see that in verse 10? You can hear that the haughtiness in their voice. It's almost like this is very academic, like indignation. No one has ever asked something like this. This is ridiculous. You want to know, how am I supposed to know your dream? Only the gods know the dreams, King Nebuchadnezzar. To which he would have said, I thought you knew the gods. I thought the gods talked to you. I thought you were in constant communication with these gods. You liars. <laughs> And we're going to see what he did after this. It's like, if you, if, okay, I know the gods know my dream, but aren't you supposed to be, who are you then? Remind me exactly why I should be listening to you. If you tell me you can't know what the gods know. You know, we have our wise men today, don't we? We just don't call them sorcerers and Chaldeans anymore. But the role that they play in society is really no different than these guys here. And I came up with five of these, and then as I was Printing out my notes, I thought of another one. So I have six here for you. Our first wise man in the culture today, who we expect to have all the answers to all the mysteries of the universe, scientists. That's what the, the president wants, right? He doesn't ask for a magician, as far as we know. He, call, he, he, calls in, he calls in for a scientist. Don't send me some weird YouTube link after that. I'm not on your team, okay? Just, all right. He wants to know, what does the science have to say? And this is what we do. We look to men 
Let me phrase this in a way that makes us see how ridiculous this is. We look to men who study animals for a living or who study planets or stars or chemicals to tell us what happens when we die. To tell us what is the meaning of the universe. Well, I, I, I find myself quite an expert on that because after all, I did discover an extra planet. How does that qualify you exactly to tell me about God? But we do this, don't we? We want them to tell us not just how the world works, but why it works. And what I'm supposed to do about it. We look at somebody like, I'll pick on him because he's easy, Richard Dawkins, who is a biologist. And I'm sure he's a great biologist. But for some reason, because he's really good at studying animals, we want him to tell us what he thinks about God. I don't see the connection between those two things. Well, I've looked at the world and I know all kinds of things about it. Stephen Hawking, same thing. Oh, he's really good at math. Okay. <laughs> so he knows everything there is to know about God and life and the universe and the afterlife and the existence of the soul and morality. Those are our wise men, though. We bring scientists in to comment on things that are outside of their domain of specificity. Number two, especially talking about dreams, psychologists. We look to people who study the mind to tell us why we do what we do, what that means about life, and therefore who we are in this universe. You give a lot of good advice to people. Can you please tell me what you believe about God? Once again, kind of an odd connection, isn't it? And you know, psychologists themselves, you leave that out ridiculous to write a dream guide to interpret dreams. You know that the great psychologists did exactly that, right? Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, they wrote books about how to interpret dreams. Well, that's, that's different. This was scientific, was it? Well, how exactly do you test those hypotheses? How exactly do you test that? And there are people, like to this day, that we say, if you're having moral issues, where do you need to go? A therapist. They can tell you. They're, they're like the shaman that we look to now for some reason. You look at somebody like Jordan Peterson. What's his expertise? He's a psychologist. But please tell us what the Bible means. I don't exactly see the connection there. Academics, number three. Professors and teachers, history professors, philosophers, literary experts, to be the experts not just on this world, but the next world too. Well, they've been to school for such a long time. They must be able to tell us about life. This person is an expert on the Vietnam War. So I wonder what he believes about angels. But we do. It's, oh, that's so ridiculous. But it's true. When we have some political matter or some social event that comes up, we say, well, this so-and-so is a professor at Harvard. We go, and? I don't see how being a professor at Harvard gives you a leg up on matters of God. Or any university, for that matter. But we looked at, well, they've studied. They have to have studied. They, there's papers on it. There's papers on everything, by the way. Don't ever be deceived by that. They're, they're, we've done research. You can research everything, but how exactly are you researching the things of God and his word? Number four, artists. In case those of you who are thinking, yeah, these, these crazy highfalutin people, they're not down with the, with the average man. Okay, artists. Painters, singers, writers, they have extra insight into human nature. And if you ever want to know like the, the height of self-importance, read a book about art by an artist. 
It's insufferable, man. There's good stuff in there, but like, we alone can pierce the veil of human nature and find out the depths of the soul and the rest of the world doesn't get us. And that's why we do cocaine all the time because we're just so smart all the time. But we go, so you can paint. Please tell me everything there is to know about heaven and hell. Well, I've seen, the, I've seen the depths of depravity and I've seen the depths of men's souls and usually it's some rich guy that visited the, the slums once in a while and wrote a great book. Hey, you may be a great book, but that doesn't make you an expert on God. Number five, this is the one that I thought of because it needed to be said, influencers. Oh, everybody scoffed because everybody scoffs, but somebody's watching these people. Some millions upon millions of people are watching this. Kind of like how everybody hates on McDonald's. It's like, yeah, but they stay open, don't they? <laughs> Celebrities, life coaches, motivational speakers, Instagram influencers. She's really pretty. I wonder what she thinks about religion. But haven't you seen some of these people? They think that because they are that, they're entitled to give an opinion that's greater than yours. Well, listen, I've been, I've been a famous singer for 20 years. I've got some theories that the rest of you need to hear. And they're more important than yours because I'm famous. People that are really good at platitudes and marketing strategies. And, you know, I was a high school pastor. And a lot of these, these kids are hearing some of these really just shallow, kind of empty platitudes for the first time. You know, live your best life. You know, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. And they go, oh. Just poetry, right? <laughs> you get a little older and you go, all right, that's, that's kind of silly, you know? But then everybody finds their little niche, their guy, their gal, their thing, and if something happens in the news, what do you do? What does she have to say about it? What's his response? Why do we care what his response is? His job is to sell Raid Shadow Legends subscriptions. <laughs> I'm being deliberately provocative and silly about this because we do this, don't we? Look to these people. What, what, how exactly are you an expert on these things? Number six is actual magicians. This is on the rise. I'm seeing this more. It's just popping up more around me where people are just going back to straight up magic. The most common one is astrology. We're going to look at how the stars move and that's going to determine how we live. That determines my personality because the moon was over there instead of over there when I was born. Come out to City Fest with us. Come out to Butterbean Festival. There's always tarot card readers out there. It becomes this sort of cute, silly thing that especially young ladies like to do is go get a psychic to come to your party. She can tell you about your future, tell you about your past, help you talk to your dead father. Mystics or psychics, or other religions, or drugs. That's magic as far as the Bible is concerned. The Bible tells us don't get into that stuff. It's a shortcut and you'll be lied to. Well, aliens, God came and spoke to me when I was super high. It's like, really? You want to believe that? That's the advice you want to take? Well, that's the way that they did it back in this culture, this culture that collapsed. How did it work for them? How did it work for them? They're, they're false gods. And you hear all these stories of these people. It's like, well, when I was on my trip and I saw these things, and it's always like scary. It's like you don't realize that you're being mocked and you're being shamed and you're being ridiculed by these demons. 
But all of these people, scientists, psychologists, academics, artists, influencers, magicians, why is it so compelling? Because they're all really good at something. It's not that they're useless. Don't get me wrong now. It's not that these people that Nebuchadnezzar called upon knew nothing. In their area of expertise, they were the best. They were the top of the world. American scientists are the best the world's ever seen. You know, you talk to somebody that is really good into psychology or really into that, and they'll have a lot of really smart things to say. You go, what? You know, I never thought about that. Sure. I I love great art. I love great literature and, and paintings and music and all of that. But we can't let these people get out of their lane. We can't invite them out of their lane. That's why I keep saying things like, so you study newts for a living. Please tell me how old the earth is or when God came from. Like, these wise men all have the same hang-up that the Chaldeans had, which is that they did not know God. Every one of these groups requires a framework in which to apply their method. So they said, hey, we can tell you what your dream is as long as you tell us what the dream is. I can tell you any question about the universe as long as I have a universe to work with. If you sit in front of me and you tell me about your life, I can give you some good advice. But none of them can come at it cold, Empty. And it's kind of like that old, that old joke, right? Where the scientist said to God, God, we don't need you anymore. We can make life on our own. And God said, all right, show me. The scientist bends over and he goes, God goes, no, no, no. Get your own dirt. <laughs> it's like, you, you, you can't start with nothing. And you know this because all, every single one of you faked a paper in high school. <laughs> you didn't read the book, but you were able to make a good enough sounding paper and maybe you even got a good grade on it. People do this. Well, they wouldn't. They're, they're, they're academics. They're famous. Oh, especially them. And yet they have the same indignation when you dare to ask them the difficult questions. They get all in hot and bothered and like, how, how dare you ask me that? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how many letters I have after my name? Don't you know the history? Don't you know? 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It says in another place, the wisdom of God, or sorry, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. God's like, on my worst day, I'm smarter than all of you to put together. And can I say this, especially maybe for some of the guys in the room, because I've encountered this a lot myself. Probably applies to the ladies too. But Nebuchadnezzar's attitude here, I think is pretty common among a lot of, a lot of guys. It's like, well, did you hear what so-and-so said? And we go, well, why am I listening to him? Nebuchadnezzar's kind of, he's, he's a very down-to-earth kind of guy. He's like, if, if you really can do this, and you should be able just to tell me. I shouldn't have to tell you my dream if you're really talking to the gods. And some of you are made to feel stupid for thinking that way. Don't let anybody do that to you. That healthy skepticism of somebody who has a claim to authority is a good thing, especially if you're a believer. You ever, you ever say this? Like, you've got to be educated to believe something that silly. Some of these theories that people float out there, and like, well, this is the state of the literature, and this is the state of what's being studied. It's like, Nobody, like, you've got to go, go try to tell somebody down at the corner store that and see if they'll listen to you. You need to retain some of that horse sense. By the way, that's a very American thing that we need to hang on to as well, is skepticism of people that are in a position and therefore can tell us what to do. 
But as we're all, we're all going to college now, so we all kind of invested in making sure that the experts are respected. But the world is simply too mysterious for our puny efforts to answer all of life's truly big questions. And Nebuchadnezzar had just about had it. So verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He was mad, you might say. And commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. That's how Nebuchadnezzar solved problems. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Like, what's the big hurry? Where did this come from? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar gets fed up. You are all a bunch of liars. You guys are living the good life because every now and then you come in and chant and roll your eyes back in your head and tell these gullible kings what the gods have to say. I've had it with you. So you know what? You're all going to be killed. If I thought that somebody was not following my orders on the battlefield, they'd be killed. Same thing here with you. Now in verse 13, it says they were about to be killed. The language could also very plausibly read that he had already started this process. So whether this was about to happen or whether this was already happening, they were going to obey his command. So we meet this guy, Arioch, who is the captain of the guard. He comes to Daniel. Now, this is where we, we are not quite sure where Daniel was. Why wasn't Daniel with them when they went before the king the first time? Now, an easy answer would be to say Daniel was still in training and he wasn't being brought forward. Uh, but the dating seems to say he could have been done by this time. Maybe he just wasn't uh, that high up in the ranking yet, but it really doesn't affect how we read the story. But it seems that Daniel had some respect from Arioch that he's able to, to talk to him a little bit. Or it could be that the captain of the guard disapproved of the orders and is more than willing to delay. This is a terrible idea. We can't just kill all these people. So he goes and he asks for time. I think that Nebuchadnezzar granted Daniel time because Daniel probably went in there and did not pretend that he knew the answer already. I'll bet you he went in and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, I've heard this. I understand what's going on. I don't know your dream. I don't know the interpretation of your dream, but my God interprets and reveals dreams. Maybe he told him the story of Joseph. We'll get into that more next time, right? He reveals things. Let me go and pray and ask my God. So, so you're going to come back and say, I will not, if I don't know, I won't tell you anything. And Nebuchadnezzar obviously saw something in Daniel that made him go, all right, there is an honest man. So we'll, I'll give you your time. And Nebuchadnezzar was willing to wait. This frustration with the experts that Nebuchadnezzar had. Have you not noticed a similar thing in our own day? That people are fed up with listening to the experts? I'm going to say some things now, and I'm really I'm not trying to take a position on this. I'm trying to address what has happened culturally here. Through the whole coronavirus pandemic, people got fed up with listening to 
the experts, did they not? Some of you in here were fed up with listening to the experts. You don't trust the scientists anymore. It became pretty clear, I think even to the most casual observer, that the story was being spun in order to get people to think that they knew more than they actually did. And when people found out about that, they got angry. And when we were seeing things like, well, don't listen to them, but listen to us because we're the real experts. Those experts don't count. You listen to us. However you yourself sort through that, most people have had their faith in the scientific world shaken. They go, you're just doing what you want to do. You're just making political decisions and calling it science. You're trying to hide behind your lab coat in order to get us to do what you want to do. Is that not what we're hearing today? We're hearing this across the board. Add to that the abuse of expert status in all of these social matters. Somebody has a, let's say, a racial or a sexual agenda they want to push. And rather than say, here's the ideas, let's think about it, they say, you have to do this because this guy has a PhD and this is what he said. Well, she's an expert on racial matters from this university, so we have to listen to her. And people look at that and we go, but this isn't something that an expert is to determine. These are moral things. Right? These are things we should be talking about, not just being handed down from on high. So there's been a further, I'd say, distrust of the term expert. It's like, well, our experts say this. Well, ours over here say that. Our historian says this. Well, we've got historians over here that say that. And we're seeing like, well, wait a minute, which one of you is the expert then? Because if the experts disagree, why exactly am I supposed to trust, trust you as if there's one thing here? The Christians have known this for a long time, haven't we? Because we've been very involved in creation science. And however you want to land on that, again, I'm pretty confident and the word of God is exactly what it means in Genesis chapter 1. But at the very least, we've seen that these people are willing to lie in order to make it very obvious that the Bible can't be true. If there's any scientific discovery that comes out that might indicate that Genesis is right, it's quashed, it's hidden, it's put down. There was a study not that long ago where they discovered T-Rex bones that had live red blood cells in them. That doesn't happen if they're kajillions of years old. So they bring it to the, the uh, symposium, they put it out there. After they put it, they took them off the website, deleted the files, and pretended it never happened until those guys went public with it. Look up Stephen C. Meyer's story. He was a member of the Smithsonian Institute until he published a paper saying, you know, the creationists might be onto something. They fired him, took him from his position, and tried to banish him to the wilderness. It's like, if you were really so sure about this, it would be nothing just to kind of make him look ridiculous. But instead, you've got to lie. Christians have known this. Similar people, again, not taking a position, have said things about climate science. It's like, this is like a power grab for you. So you're weaponizing this thing that we all honor and revere. And so what is this happening? What's happening here? People are getting fed up with liars who only serve an agenda, but wrap it in this veil of authority. And you can apply this to tons of different places where somebody comes up and says, here's what we've determined. And you go, no, you're following the money. That's what's happening. People are fed up with that. Because they say, you know what, if all you're doing is serving what you want to do, what makes what you want to do more important than what I want to do? I believe that we are about to see our culture's epistemology crumble. I think the way that we evaluate what is true is going to change, or at the very least be challenged and shaken, if it's not happening already. I just drew some of those things out to you, where people say, well, scientists, and people just roll their eyes now. 
That was, I mean, that was ironclad authority for a long time, wasn't it? Well, so-and-so from, uh, you know, professor, whatever you go, from what school? Why do we ask? Because we know, depending on what school they go to, they're going to have different answers. So it's being shaken and say, why should we listen to the experts? And that's going to be big because we have farmed out this stuff to our wise men for a long time. And we think, ah, that would never happen. We're too smart. We're too wise. We've got too many things figured out. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 47. Hear what the Lord said to the Babylonians and apply this to our own lives. Isaiah 47, verses 9 through 14. This is a prophecy by Isaiah against Babylon. So knowing what we know from this story that we've been reading, listen to this. He said, These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. So disaster is coming. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness, and you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing." Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. Fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. And you hear the mockery that God has of their magic. They were so secure in. And again, this time, science and magic and religion were all kind of rolled up into one thing here. You think you're so smart. You placed your confidence and your ability to conjure. Likewise, we cannot place our trust Bank everything on our limited sources of knowledge to save us. Say, so, well, so-and-so said this, and this group said that, and this teacher, and this author, and this limited sources of knowledge. And the danger, of course, with all the frustration that we're experiencing, is that we will toss out legitimate wisdom in addition to all the, the lies and the political squabbling of it will say, you know what, why do we listen to scientists at all? And then things that we've known and should have known for a long time are going to be up for question that shouldn't be up for question anymore. We're going to say, you know what, I don't believe that, I don't believe that our art has anything to tell us. This has happened before in lots of places. And what happens is when you just rip up the foundation by the roots, you, you leave the door open for a lot of terrible tyranny and other kinds of lies to come in. We'll believe anything. Maybe you've known a person like that. Have you ever seen somebody that, not, not talking about, you know, for a time, but who just cast off the Lord and just ripped up all the roots? I don't want anything to do with the church anymore. What happens to them? Right away, they fall headlong and do all of this crazy stuff because the foundation's been ripped up. And this is what might happen to us culturally. So this is when the Christians have to step up, like Daniel, in humility, not claiming to know everything, not claiming to be the experts, but saying, but I do know God, and he does know everything. And I do have his gospel, and it is the answer. 
Daniel committed himself not to his own wisdom, but to prayer so that God might reveal himself. Does our creator God not know all things? God goes, I made it. I know what's going on in it. I know how it works. I know what's good and what's bad. You can talk all day long about how you think the DNA works. I'm looking at it. (laughs) I can tell you exactly how it works. I strung it together. Seems like every time we invent new technologies to study things, we realize how wrong we were. You know, there was not that long ago in the 20th century, there was the, have you seen the equation that somebody came up with of like the odds of discovering extraterrestrial life? They had an equation. And so we, it's, it's this likely that we will discover extraterrestrial life. So definitely they're out there. And then we get bigger telescopes and better telescopes and better ability to measure things. And we can measure the things and nobody's there. Nobody's there. Well, the, the equation, but then you take a second look at the equation and you go, how in the world did you expect to determine this? Sitting here in a, in a laboratory somewhere. Well, I'm assuming that our, if our universe is just like everybody else's, then you know, there will be lots of it. Well, turns out you were wrong about that. And it turns out you had no reason to assume that in the first place. This is what happens when you just assume things. But our God knows there's nothing beyond his knowledge. Proverbs talks about wisdom as a lady that is in attendance upon the Lord. Isn't that cool? It says, wisdom and I made this world together. It's a personification. Not that there's a God named wisdom. But it's just saying, this is how I made the world. And in Christ Jesus, you have the greatest answer to the greatest questions. Jesus not only teaches you what the answers are, he teaches you what the questions are. You're not asking the right questions. You're not, you're not thinking about this the right way. And Jesus gives us that. Which is why Colossians, we read this verse last week, but see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Whatever you want to put in there, according to the Western canon, according to the American tradition, according to the ecumenical union of all the faiths and all the knowledge, and not according to Christ. Don't be deceived by the world and its lofty systems. We think they're so intimidating until you see them have to explain themselves and you realize the lion has no teeth and the emperor has no clothes. Instead, you cling to Jesus. He's the missing variable in every equation and without him, you will never arrive at the truth. But once you find Jesus, you won't learn all the answers, but all the rest of it will fall into place. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, and this section is in poetic verse, if you don't have it broken down, but this is Hebrew poetry. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So God told him, and we're gonna look at that dream next time. I imagine Daniel was praying and then he had the same dream and was able to remember it. I never remember my dreams. And then Daniel gives this beautiful praise song to the Lord. And really, this section summarizes the major themes of the book of Daniel. 
that God is in charge of history. He knows what's going on, and he reveals it to his people. Praising God for his wisdom. And again, wisdom is more than just life hacks. This is this mysterious knowledge of things that nobody knows. But not only does God possess all knowledge, he has the might, wisdom and might, meaning God has the ability to establish the wisdom that he has. He's not some lonely God that knows all things but can't do anything about it. He's not like Cassandra, the prophet that knows what's going to happen and nobody's going to listen. God goes, I know what's up and I have the ability to make it happen and I'm going to. So the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2, right? He said, why do the nations rage? The Lord laughs. I've set up my king. Kiss the son lest I be angry. And he also adds that only God can give wisdom to men. Only God reveals great mysteries. Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're starting from the wrong place if you don't have the Lord. But the wonderful news for you and me is that God has not hidden himself. <laughs> Bertrand Russell, was, who was a famous atheist, wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian, was asked, I believe at a, at a lecture somewhere, and said, what will you do if you die and you go to heaven and God asks you why you didn't believe? He says, I will ask him, sir, why did you go to such great pains to hide yourself? He said to the Christian in the audience, asking him about what was going to happen when he died, hide himself. He was right in front of you. He was asking you to your face. You were debating and discussing Christians laying it out right in front of you. It wasn't hidden from you. You were willingly blind. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2, will you? This is such a great section. I, I usually just read a piece of it, but I wanted to read the whole thing today. Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 8. This is the promise of Scripture. He says, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. God doesn't want to keep us in the dark. This is the view some people have of God. It's like that H.P. Lovecraft idea. The gods are there and they're real and they're all powerful, but they don't care about you and you can't know anything about them. Best just to stay out of their way. Not my God. Not the true and living God. Yes, he's great. And yes, he's far above and his ways are higher than mine. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't know anything about him. But the Lord loves us. He's reached down to reveal himself to us. Look at creation itself. That's the first revelation of God. Creation. That's why we can study it, by the way. That's why we can have science and math. Because God set it up in a wise way. And wow, we can, we can plot the trajectory of the planets with math. Well, how does that happen? Because God is smart. God set it up. We study these things and we find out how these animals multiply and how DNA works and we go, wow, what a happy accident. <laughs> no way. Not just that though, you've got the scriptures right in front of you. Why doesn't God reveal himself? He gave you a book. He gave you a giant book that even people who believe it hardly have time to get through. He gave you so much, you forget stuff. If God spoke to you, do you think you'd ever forget any of it? Well, you've got a book of 66 books in your lap. 
Can you quote all of it? God's given us so much revelation, we have a hard time remembering all of it. Jesus himself is the incarnate Word of God. The Word of God. He was the ultimate, consummate revelation of God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Do you not know that the Father is in me and I in him, him? And I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit who will take all that is mine, which is all that is the Father's, and declare that to you? Failure to attend to the wisdom you've already been given is a big reason why God does not give further revelation to people. Well, I've been praying and God won't show himself to me. Have you read your Bible? Well, I just want to see for myself. God goes, you arrogant little punk. I'm not giving you anything. He's like, well, God, reveal yourself to me. And then you run into that friend from high school that's a Jesus freak now. Say, oh, not this guy again. Hey, man, you got to come to church with me. No, no, thank you. I'm not going to church. And you get in the car. Lord, please show yourself. Reveal yourself to me. I goes, I did. You just didn't like the messenger because you're so full of it. And you think you're smart. And you can't handle the thought of somebody that's not as smart as you knowing more about God than you. Not only that, I mean, we talked about this a lot on Wednesday. Go ahead and take some time to listen to it. God also gives dreams and visions and spiritual gifts. We've seen some incredible things in this church. If you've ever doubted that God still does miraculous things, you've got to come to the prayer meetings. But we have to start by seeking truly. This is where we're going to close it out here. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. I saw somebody online read that verse and then go, I just, I can't figure out what does Jesus mean here? You don't know. It's the most obvious thing in the world. If you want to know something about God, ask him. But the thing is, if you come with all of this pre-knowledge that you refuse to give up, you're going to miss it. Have you not found that there's this embarrassing and hilarious trend of people setting out to disprove the Bible, turning into evangelists and apologists? C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, all these other guys like, I'm going to disprove this book. And they go, wow, this guy, he's got some good ideas in here. <laughs> I didn't know that was in there, right? But if you come to God and say, well, I'll believe anything except that I have to break up with my girlfriend because that's the most important thing in the world to me. Then God goes, then you know what? I'm not telling you anything. I'm not here to bow and scrape before you. I created you. And not only that, you are a sinner. You deserve to go to hell, so you'll excuse me if I don't go out of my way to make it easy for you. But you know what's so great about God's love is he does that anyway. Amen. Amen. And if you're sitting here, well, God has never spoken to me. He is speaking to you right now. Yeah. This loud preacher. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> I was, I got to tell the story. We were in the, in the prison, and I was preaching and finished up and went to, to Tommy afterwards, and he goes, I didn't realize you were so loud. I'm like, you know, if in prison church they think I'm loud, I must be loud. You say, that's great, Tyler, but how do you know that this is true? Jesus can say, seek and you'll find, that's great. How do we know this happens? From a lifetime of testimony and experience. Look around this room. Why do you think we're here? We could be anywhere today. But we're here. Why? Because we have found Jesus. We found God. How could any man ever find God? We find him every week. 
If you seek the Lord in sincerity, meaning if you seek the Lord with an attitude that says, I don't care what God says. I don't care if God tells me to pick up a sword and and launch another crusade to Jerusalem. I'm going to do it. Why did I pick that example? Because it's something none of us would ever want God to tell us to do. But if you come to God and say, I don't care what it is, I'll do it. I don't care if you want me to climb a mountain on my knees and jump off and immolate myself in the public square. I'll do it that I may know God. God goes, yes, I can use this guy. Because he's got nothing holding him back. But we come to God with all these preconceptions. Well, there's some things that I know from my philosophy classes and my psychology classes and some things I've read in literature. And and if God can can be right in line with all of that, God will mess all of that up for you. That's what Jesus did. He showed up, he found the traditions people held so dear, and he just tipped them over. He's like, it has nothing to do with that. Daniel and his friends sought the Lord in sincerity and they found him. And so will you if you're sincere. Many people say, I'm a sincere seeker. What they mean by that is, I'll look anywhere except for Jesus. The deep mysteries of the universe. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is good? All of those are answered in Christ Jesus and the gospel, which only makes sense because Jesus Christ was the Son of God incarnate. So you think Jesus has all truth? Yes! Because God became a man and talked to us. So listen to him. Well, I think the other guys have some good ideas. Did God become a man and talk to them? Well, they say that God did. Did their guy rise from the dead? Not to say that we know everything, but we know enough. And we move from glory to glory in Christ Jesus. Not only learn better answers, we ask better questions. And all the clamor of the world, we just look at it and go, you guys... This doesn't even matter. What matters is over here. We've got to fix this. We've got to fix the culture, fix society, fix. And Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. We go, Jesus, I don't like that. He goes, it's because you're so wrong. But I'm here to tell you the truth. Stop just listening to anybody who happens to have a veneer of authority and go right to the source, including me. I'm not the righteous guy. I'm telling you about the righteous guy. Go look it up for yourself. Seek and you will find. We end with verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And you better do it because if you don't do it, you're going to be next. But he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. He lets him know God has spoken, and next week we're going to see what happened when he, when he got to talk to him. There's nothing quite like the testimony of those who have found God, and that's what Daniel had, to convince people. And in the end, that's all that we have, isn't it? Is the testimony of people who have found God. Jesus Christ was not just a symbol. In fact, John said, anybody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is what? An antichrist. If you, do, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, and I'll add, or that it matters that Jesus came in the flesh, you're an antichrist, a forerunner of the antichrist. He was, he was the real deal. He lived a sinless life. He taught us the truth. He died and he rose again. And you say, how do we know? Because we are carrying this 2,000-year-old Olympic torch, and it's still burning. We've been maintaining this testimony since before there were video recordings and audio recordings. And you just had to tell each other. 
We wrote it down. We're maintaining the testimony. That's what the ultimate job of a Christian is, is to guard the truth of the resurrection. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul said, From the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Don't be led astray by the temptation to look respectable. Everybody will laugh at me if I say it's just Jesus. Let them laugh. They're hurting. They're desperate. They're broken. And they're going to see that and they're going to want a piece of that. But people who want to seem respectable before the other wise men abandon the truth piece by piece by piece. A little for the magicians, a little for the Chaldeans, a little for the conjurers, the scientists, the artists, the influencers. The world is fed up with sketchy answers, so the church has got to stop giving sketchy answers. Bold proclaimers of the one thing that matters, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look out to the world. Be sensitive to the big questions they're asking, and then lead them to the only one who has the answers.